Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Jack Lloyd. Really appreciate Jack joining me. If you're a fan of the show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by returning guest. We have Jack Lloyd. Jack, how are you today? Good, Kelly. How are you doing? Doing very well. Really appreciate you coming on. For anyone who is listening, maybe you're not familiar with Jack, but if you do follow me on social media, uh, whether it be my Facebook page or Instagram or Twitter. Um, Jack Lloyd is a name that you will see from time to time. I'll share some of his content. Jack is not only an author, um, but he does a lot of work in the, the world of, I guess you can just say, anarcho-thought. His newest book is A Vision for a Libertarian Future. It's his second nonfiction book. Jack has also written, I believe, over 10 different fiction books. So Jack, if it's all right, could you introduce yourself to the audience? I know you did this once before, but you'll do a much better job than me. What brought you to this anarcho-libertarian world and how would you describe what it is you do? Sure. So I I, uh, got into libertarian thought uh, pretty much just around my uh, first year of college when I started to deep dive um, the American eugenics movement after a, a lesson in my history class on the case of Buck v. Bell. Um, where they forcibly sterilized Carrie Buck for being an epileptic. And so I kind of was shocked about that and had to revisit everything I knew because I n- never heard about the American eugenics movement before. And I was, I was just shocked to hear that these things happen in America. So I had to kind of revisit all my premises. And I started to deep dive through American history again, look at it with fresh eyes, got into some 
you know, different historical conspiracies, but they're, you know, actually truths, you know, with Alex Jones and the people like that. Um, and then made my way eventually down to hearing um, other authors in the Liberty space, like Larkin Rose um, and Stefan Molyneux and, uh, you know, people like Mark Stevens. And so I, I started to, you know, see voluntarist content and started to read up on voluntarist literature uh, like Lysander Spooner's uh, No Treason, The Constitution, No Authority, and John Haznes's The Myth of the Rule of Law. And so that was really starting to spark my interest. And eventually I, I moved my way from being a neoconservative to becoming a full-fledged voluntarist, small L libertarian or anarcho-capitalist, <laughs> whichever term you prefer. And uh, after I got kind of grounded in the principles um, and did a little bit of student activism, just, you know, low level things with some student events. I eventually wanted to take my work and activism a little further. And one of the ways that I thought that would be fun was through the, uh, I guess you could say comic book slash a fantasy medium. And I thought I might work on a, a film script. And I had this idea for like voluntary superheroes and eventually Realizing budget constraints on that, I decided to move to a comic book medium format because I thought that was more realistic to accomplish. And so that led to the creation of Voluntaries, the comic series that I've been doing for over 10 years now. Um, that's my fiction side of things. And we just finished up um, just about a little, about a, yeah, a little over a year ago, the uh, the last campaign, the Origin 6, the, the close to the Origins arc. Um, and so we're finishing some remasters of past issues. It's going to be a, you know, a huge thing, um, you know, when it comes out and when I launch my next arc later this year. And then I started to do other types of viral content with this uh, page called Anarchy Ball. So those who know the black and yellow ball memes, I was one of the original moderators for that. So I was creating content and educating people on uh, liberty and Austrian economics. And then over the years, I decided to do more of my own production development. And did things like uh, start up the philosopher with my now wife, you know, Fa, and you know we produced all kinds of content there, from skits to educational videos, music, music videos, and we you know even host events. And I also educate people on unschooling, especially through my page, the Honest Teacher, because of my experience being a former juvenile defense attorney, uh, substitute teacher, public school teacher, full time, as well as tutoring company owner. So I, I had quite the wide range of experience to talk about what's really wrong with compulsory schooling. And so I just used that outlet to kind of educate people on the ethical alternative with unschooling or self-directed education. And then eventually I got to the point where, you know, after doing this, all this types of uh, Liberty production stuff, I decided I wanted to encapsulate my thoughts in a succinct way that I, I didn't think was sufficiently done in any one book or set of, of books out there. Um, that's when I started writing my nonfiction of the first of which was Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism. And then the second one, A Vision for a Libertarian Future, came out uh, several months ago. And there'll be a third edition um, to that trilogy, which will close the trilogy, the foundations to um, these philosophical ideas called Philosophical Voluntarism, which will probably be out either later this year or by January 2024 uh, at the latest. So I know it's a little bit long-winded, but it gives a good encapsulation of all the, the things I've done and did and got to this point by, so... Great introduction. I really appreciate that. Um, I know this is a very broad question, but if you had to summarize, what is it? You're an attorney, you're a teacher, you're an educator. What is it that is your long-term goal? Because it doesn't sound like you're just trying to get yourself rich, I assume. You're not just trying to increase your personal net worth at all costs. Instead, you are driven by a purpose. What is that purpose? 
Well, yeah, I, I definitely don't shun profits or getting rich or money. Absolutely not. Uh, but I, I do have at the forefront of my work, uh, very much by the nature of it, it's clearly not firstly about uh, getting rich because I'm, I'm tackling topics that are definitely outside the mainstream and not uh, low-hanging fruit to getting rich, obviously. Um, I'm, I'm much more interested, of course, firstly, being a, a catalyst for change and changing minds and education, um, you know, regardless of whether that's profitable or not. Um, my passion is is actually in helping people become principled, uh, becoming peaceful parents, um, and changing the paradigm with people thinking outside the state. So with that in mind, uh, you know, I've always had a creative bent when I was originally in college, I was in the art school. Technically, I was trying to do digital media, um, and that was not working out because the program just basically was not up to snuff, and they were having me take a bunch of classes that had nothing to do with digital media, so I was very annoyed. And so, in, in a sense, I kind of did a long, roundabout way of, of getting back into digital design production and, and things like that as, as, as a producer after undergrad and law school and other things. And now I use that passion, that original passion for creativity in the Liberty space, uh, doing things to help wake people up, whether it's just propaganda or really robust philosophical education. I, I do the full gamut, the full spectrum of outreach, and that includes uh, talks, it includes skits, it includes music, um, you know, comic books, memes, and whatever else, uh, you know, even products and things like that. We've obviously made Liberty merch uh, along the way from coasters to shirts and stickers and whatever. So we really have kind of a full-scale creative outlet between now me and my wife um, of, of producing content that helps educate and inspire for Liberty. And so that is my ultimate goal. And in an ideal sense, if I were to say, you know, what some of my chief aims are, it's to take the comic series that I've been working on and, and scale it up to like the level of what um, Ripperverse has achieved with Eric July. He's done a fantastic job with his work um, and, and his uh, Liberty Productions. It's not, you know, Liberty focused as much as mine is, um, but obviously he, he sows some of those ideas in there and definitely still promotes his principles. So um, that's, that's a personal goal on that end. And then, you know, we, we have fun doing everything else that we do, you know, even though we do music, we're not like trying to become the next big, band or something like that we just do it kind of for fun and you know we're even performing just a few weeks ago at pork fest we did two shows there with our music so you know it's for us it's more just having fun while you know bringing the message of liberty in different mediums um with the hopes that it just gets uh you know popular and 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 people start to appreciate enjoy the the core philosophy and the ethics and economics education you know leading them back to both uh, the nonfiction side of things and then of course further investigation through the things that i reference in my books because even in my own writings i i tell people to read further and deeper on economics issues whether it's mises and rothbard or on things with peaceful parenting or on things um, with communication tactics, Marshall uh, uh, B. Rosenberg and nonviolent communication. So, you know, I kind of have that starting point where uh, a lot of the work we do is getting people excited and engaged at a ground level and then giving them the tools they need to take things further. You have mentioned peaceful parenting a couple of times. Why is that important to you? So peaceful parenting uh, kind of backdrops a lot of the applied ethics of voluntarism um, in the home. And a big part of that is helping young people be able to not only have a sense of respect and uh, conscientiousness about their bodies and property rights, but also um, using a reason uh, and um, you know verbal communication over threats and ultimatums and shame. Uh, and that's because a large part of what people have been acclimated to 
um, is is threats and violence and ultimatums, and that comes in the form sometimes of of parents, um, you know, hitting kids, or uh, you know, just making things all or nothing, but not being conversational, or you know, especially for for most people, the, the public schooling experience where young people are told that they have to follow the government's curriculum, you know, hour by hour for 13 years. And that's central planning of a kid's life. And if they don't do that, then they're just going to be stupid or barely be able to work at a McDonald's or something like that. So um, moving away from those types of uh, means of communication and child rearing and moving toward more conversational, reason-based, property rights-oriented uh, forms of parenting really helps instill in young people that that sense of autonomy and desire for respect of, of consent that is uh, key to underpinning a culture of people who do that broadly, you know, because they experience that in the home. And then, of course, anything that's violent or, or um, you know, statist in that way where, you know, it's you're going to rationalize violence because I have a shiny badge. They, they would naturally just reject that um, because of how they experience being reasoned with and how they experienced having a consent manifested and, and respected in the home uh, growing up. So. That, that's why peaceful parenting is so important. You mentioned uh, the word propaganda earlier. And of course, in this instance, you were using it, I believe, in a positive way. And I appreciate that. Um, you are involved in the production of whether it be memes or yard signs, different forms of marketing, or I guess you could say propaganda. That word obviously is used a lot of times negatively. But in this case, if it's promoting freedom and, and all the good things, then, I, you know, of course, it's a good thing. What is the most successful piece of propaganda you have made thus far? What I mean by that is you have the yard signs, you have the, the memes. What has caught on the best for you thus far? I mean, the, the thing that did the most cultural change, and this is empirical and demonstrable, it's something that I personally, you know, tracked and and have a story about it so it's not um you know just kind of like me wishfully thinking or, or making an inference it's it's very concrete and that's um when i was with anarchy ball i created this post um based off someone else's uh meme that had nothing to do with liberty or principles or politics it just said seven things every kid must hear and so i refashioned that to put in in one of those places in a list um taxation is theft is as one of those planks you know other things were like about i love you or you know saying to a kid you know i i need you i hear you that kind of thing but then i snuck in there <laughs> so people who would who would just read it very quickly and casually the first you would just share it right and then unwittingly uh share the taxation stuff part in there and that went very viral it kicked off what i you know have studied the actual taxation theft cultural trend. And I studied that using a Google Analytics, looking at the history of the searchability terms. And I took a look at other people who did other things later on, um, like one gentleman who wore that taxation stuff shirt at the uh, Texas Astros game, like that happened months later. And Dan Berman stuff with taxation stuff. A lot of people, um, you know, kind of followed suit after I did that kind of cultural piercing. And then that meme that I made went very viral on its own, you know, just for that. But it also got remixed by um, another person. I believe it was Philip Santa Maria. And funnily enough, that guy is a comic book artist also who actually was a teacher in my state while I was teaching. It's kind of, you know, funny synchronicity there. Um, he, I believe, uh, made it where uh, instead of taxation stuff, it said communism has failed every time it was tried. And then I believe he printed that on a poster and put it in his classroom and took a picture of it. 
Um, and that picture of the communism has failed every time it was tried, eventually, you know, remade its way into other things too, as its own flat meme. And then it got to the point where Elon Musk shared it. So it was really a funny, like, you know, butterfly effect where you just don't know exactly what's going to happen with what you do until it reaches this crazy height. So there I am creating 2016 in February, this, you know, viral meme that goes viral for taxation staff and then gets remixed into, you know, communism has failed every time it's been tried. It inspires a bunch of people to then really go aggressive with their taxation theft propaganda as well. And other people follow suit, um, you know, and you may even see that, like, remember that one guy who like shoots a beer can, you know, and says like taxation is theft, you know what I mean? That kind of thing that was about another, I mean, that came later um, off of that kind of cultural shift. Uh, and then, you know, it made it its way eventually, you know, up to Elon Musk sharing it on his, you know, well-followed profile. So I thought that was what, was a pretty cool one. You know what I mean? Because I could, I actually could follow the history of that. Uh, you know, I had the records, I had the metrics, I had the comparatives of, you know, who else did other things later um, to really know, okay, that I did do that. And then to see it get remixed all the way up to something that goes up to Elon Musk was, was pretty cool. Now I've done other things like that. I have actually many um, viral pieces of content that I've made over the years, uh, but that one really has stuck out with, you know, to me for the, my whole life, because it's just like, that was my goal was to get taxation as theft as this like more normed cultural thing. And it did. And the government came after, you know, us um, because of that kind of thing, uh, you know, with when they started, you know, doing the, the censorship stuff and, you know, 2016, 2017, you know, Facebook and all of them started to move on the accounts that were sharing all this radical content. Um, and so we we faced the throttlings of that, along with others. You know, many great people were were shut down in that process, like you know Jason Bassler and the Free Thought Project and Anti Media and a few other outlets. So, you know, but we did it. We you know we we got that cultural penetration done. So that was great. What I find fascinating about your material, Jack, is a lot of times you will have what was that one yard sign that. That people yeah. put up and it says like in this house, I see it every time I walk my dog and I'm just, right. my wife is from Cuba and you're just like, come on. It's just like a Black Lives Matter uh, just announcing proudly in someone's front yard that they are not racist. Like that's right. basically the sentiment. Every, we accept everyone. And you took a very creative, I, I assume you made that, right, Jack? Yes. Yeah, so I created what's called the libertarian we believe sign in response to that. And, you know, it's on Zazzle and some people tried to make their own versions of it. And you can you can tell the rips because they have a different color scheme than I did. And they chose a different font, but they basically, you know, and I don't. And again, I don't care. I obviously don't believe in IP. So but it's, it's fun to see that people liked it that much. <laughs> they wanted to, you know, do their own versions. But the, the original libertarian we believe sign is, is what I the one I created. And I did that before anybody else. So. But when I share that on my wall on social media, many people who I associate with just being general, run-of-the-mill Republicans really like – it's interesting to see which part of your anarcho um, marketing material or, or propaganda it is that resonates with who. And you, you, I just find it to be very fascinating how it can uh, uh, connect with certain people. And it's not always people on the right, of course, also the left. Um, but I, I thought it was fascinating that when I share that, that seems to be a very popular one. 
Yeah, I, I thought it was actually exceptionally popular as well. I, I will admit, I was a little surprised that that got as viral as it did because I, I put some things in there that are a little more controversial. You know, it says um, in this house, we believe the ATF is a criminal gang. Every gun law is an infringement, which, again, you know, with the current gun culture, like I could see those people being all right and maybe the conservative side. And then it goes taxation is theft. Socialism is evil. The state is a mafia. And that's, you know, state is a mafia is, is a little extra um, for more normie people. And then it says property rights are everything. So maybe it's because the way I couched it, um, you know, with the beginning and end kind of made it so good that they kind of like let go of the state is a mafia. And, and of course, when Republicans are not in power, right, so, you know, Democrats yeah. and Biden, they're a little more willing to like say that right now, especially, you know, with what happened with the FBI and Epstein Island and all the raids and stuff like that. Now they like really are kind of getting it that, you know, the deep state is um, really a mafia. So I, I think I kind of hit that soft spot opportunity where people more on the mainstream right were we're kind of ready for that message and and it worked and a lot of people were, were sharing that all around i was like okay great <laughs> there are so. a few different topics i do want to get to with you but before we do that jack uh you mentioned earlier you have released your second nonfiction book that will be a part of a three-part series that will be released whether it's later this year or the beginning of 2024 can you summarize what is that uh, uh, nonfiction series. Could you summarize that for the listeners? What is that series? What's the purpose of that? Sure. So the definitive guide to libertarian voluntarism, that's the core principles, the core philosophy of what it means to be a libertarian slash voluntarist. And each word has a specific meaning. And that's why I used it, even though it's a huge mouthful because libertarian is the property rights aspect and voluntarism is the consent aspect. So libertarianism is the, the idea that, okay, self-ownership um, is our bodily property right and physical property rights matter. And we believe in, in that um, necessity of having outer bodily property rights and not having competition over scarce resources, as opposed to someone who's maybe a communist or a socialist of sorts who wants to have more um, conflicts over the scarce resources through, you know, what they call communal ownership or common ownership or the public ownership, whatever they want to you know, frame it as. So libertarians are, of course, not about that, not about, you know, government forcing these, these collectives. And then voluntarism is, is the idea um, that consent is what meters ethical behavior, you know, just like we understand that rape is the lack of consent with sex. Like if you have consent to sex, okay, that's great. You know, that's, that's fine. But if you, if you don't have that, well, now that's, that's a big moral problem. And if you, you know, take uh, food from somebody without consent, you know, that's going to be theft. But if you're like, oh, here's five bucks and they give you a hot dog. Okay. Well, that's, that's a transaction. That's totally fine. So we, we understand that property rights and consent have to intersect here. And, and I really, dive into those principles, make them defendable. And I put it in a, in a succinct format that anybody could just read on a lazy Saturday. And I had to do that in my opinion, because there just wasn't a book that really did that well, that made it accessible for your typical, you know, average person. It, it's just, it's very difficult to get someone, especially, you know, if they're married, they have kids to be like, yeah, I have time to read a thousand page economic treatise or, you know, I have to read ten, these other 10 books. They just, it's not very practical. And I, I thought that um, it was time to have a practical guide that can get someone pilled on the principles and they could wrap their mind around it quickly. But then, you know, whenever they felt ready, then there's references for further reading to dive deeper if they want to go deeper into economics, for example. Um, and then A Vision for a Libertarian Future, my second book that frameworks my advocacy for how we get from point A to point B when it comes to the government, because as much as we have these principles, 
grounded. It doesn't really tell us how we go from having government, you know, be everywhere and, and everything and intervene in every part of our lives to, okay, how do we move toward a free market, right? Um, we need a vision, in my opinion, because most people just can't imagine how we get from point A to point B without having a kind of plan and idea of incrementalism of, of how we can move toward that direction. I think it's it's pretty important because at the end of the day, you still have to deal with, you know, who's going to own the roads and what about the nuclear weapons, right? So we need to answer these questions as libertarians and to be practical about it in a way that doesn't plunge us all into chaos or subject us to a foreign government immediately coming over and taking over, right? That that, that would not exactly be a libertarian future here. So um, I kind of succinctly put together the core areas of alignment for how we move. Um, and really a lot of that is about moving away from taxation as the primary funding model for government, moving toward getting rid of victimless crimes and reforming, you know, the justice system and that kind of thing. And again, it's, it's not really, um, you know, something that, uh, you have to be 100% bought into to you know agree with the large bulk of it. But I think it's inspiring and gives most people who, especially people who have not really had a sense of all those things, like how do we move from A to B on that, uh, a way for them to wrap their mind around it and feel confident about these ideas and principles and not to just be like, oh, well, what? You just you know, want anarchy or something like that? And you know, mistakenly use it for chaos, even though anarchy just means no rulers. But it, it's, it, I think it's a real necessary uh, bridging the gap for people who need to see how they can really adopt these ethics and apply them in the real world. And then the final book, which you know is not out yet, but um, we're currently just uh, doing some editing on it, on it, and finalizing it. That will be a little bit more of the application to the of the principles to uh, one's own personal life um, and and one's own, uh, I guess you could say, self help. So it will be a little bit more of a self help book with the principles applied for helping one be a better thinker for liberty. Okay. Good stuff. And of course, um, you also have your, you know, the comic book series and the, the, the fiction work you have done. A summary of that would be. Um, so most of my uh, fiction work that's in print is the Voluntarist comic series. So I've been doing that for over 10 years now. I spent the first half of it kind of figuring out everything with comic production because I, you know, really didn't have any direct experience. I never worked for a comic book company before. I, I never, you know, had a family member who was in it. So I had to learn everything the hard way. Um, and I learned and I grew. I made mistakes, but I always tried to improve. And then um, as I did my prototyping through those years, I eventually got to a pretty good point where I could start on the main canon story. And that's what I did with Origins, which I've been doing now for about six years. And we've done the sixth uh, issue for that. And then on top of that, with this last campaign, um, we also are remastering, and that's almost complete now, the first two issues from the, the series because um, that was done with a comic company, a, a middleman company that went defunct and the artwork wasn't the same. And I was just like, you know, just want to get everything consistent, coherent. So I did that, lettered it myself, remastered everything myself on the letters part and worked with my art team that's been consistent for years on doing those. So now we're about to have a trade paperback edition of all six of those issues that will be about... 190 pages so pretty pretty hefty um on top with uh, of uh, six standalone issues with remastered covers and beautiful uh lettering and artwork i'm very proud of it and that will hopefully fingers crossed be out by um late fall this year um at the latest with the uh, next arc suit saga coming out probably 
again, late fall or early winter uh, at the latest based on where we're tracking right now. Jack, you are an anarchist. Uh, you would describe yourself as an anarchist or I guess a voluntarist, correct? Yeah, I'm technically an anarchist in that my ethical ideal is for the power and size scope of the state to be reduced down to zero. So that is the most ethical uh, form of human interaction and, and, and of course, uh, relationships. Um, I think that getting there, of course, is, is very difficult with how much government, how much brainwashing there is out there right now, um, which is why I'm very much focused more so, even though I am that, on the incrementalism because I just genuinely think that we really need to get people um, on this path toward liberty and the culture change and the the structures of how people have their relationships change in schooling and parenting um, to even get anything close to that. So I definitely deal a lot more in the weeds. I'm, I'm on the front lines of, <laughs> of educating people. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with people asking the questions all the time, who will build the roads and what about the children? So I'm, I'm always on the forefront of, of those things and helping people um, move down the path. And for how long have you identified that way? So at this point, I've been a libertarian going on um, like 18 years about now. Wow. And um, yeah, and I've been solidly voluntarist um, like very, you know, thoroughly voluntarist for over 13. And, you know, and then the before that was my transition of, you know, going from neocon to paleoconservative to big L libertarian to small libertarian. Um, and, you know, a big part of that switch, like three or four years of, of deep diving was undoing all my rationalizations for state action, which I had a ton because I was programmed like everybody else who went to a compulsory schooling environment to believe that the government is the only ethical way to do things. And, you know, you're crazy if you try to, you know, do, think outside the state. And I had to unwind that. And I did. It was it was a uh, it was tough. Lots of arguments, lots of debates, lots of researching. But um, I made my way uh, from there and and eventually came down to the ethical principles. Um, and, and probably about, yeah, 2009 around is where I like was, you know, really on the voluntarist path with by 2010. I was like, OK, I want to be an activist as a voluntarist of like really wanting to change people's minds. Now that I've spent these years learning the principles and debating and internalizing them. So you do not believe in voting. Therefore you do not vote at all. So as t in terms of voting, I think that voting can be done defensively. I have not personally voted in seven years or so, maybe a little more. Um, I, and that was and that was more just a an, a, a privacy issue because where we are uh, when you vote the government makes it all public and unless you're someone who who's on their special protected class list they're basically doxing your information your address who you voted for and so I'm like yeah I don't I don't even want that out there especially with what we do so we kind of raced ourselves off all the rolls and and just said you know it's what we do is too sensitive to to really be engaged that way but I don't think that anyone um, can be faulted for voting defensively. That is trying to upend the oppression that's on them. That's going to be forced on them. So I think positive voting, like in other words, you're voting because you want someone to rule you or you're trying to get control. I think that's unethical. Um, but I have absolutely no problem with someone who's like, yeah, I want to vote on decriminalization or, 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 you know, an amendment ballot to like 
have the government legalize something, you know, basically stopping the oppression or just trying to get a libertarian candidate out there trying to speak and change minds. So uh, I definitely stand out from some other people in, in my realm who are like this. There's a lot of people who uh, completely reject politics and politicking. Um, I'm unique in that I don't. I think that all means of engagement are necessary to change minds. And it's just the nature of people and their attention. I myself uh, was certainly one affected by that. You know, the people in the LP helped me along the way. So I can personally and empathetically relate to the idea of of people being reached out during political season and not otherwise listening or not being as engaged. So to me, that's, that's just really what matters is, is creating that culture across the board in every area of life of thinking outside the state. You are 18 years into identifying at least as a libertarian. I'm about three years into it now. So just, just when COVID (laughs) happened. So I'm uh, of course, much newer to this, so it makes for interesting conversations, regardless of, of um, you know, how long we're in it, but comparing the two different situations to me is at least interesting. Um, I will describe my voting strategy, and I'll, if it's all right, I'd like to hear your feedback. I was previously a, uh, for my whole life, registered Republican. I changed in 2020 to be a libertarian. I started seeing all the COVID shit happening, changed to be a libertarian, was happy to vote for Joe Jorgensen. I voted for Brad Barron as the libertarian candidate in the Senate race against Mitch McConnell. So I, of course, didn't vote for the Democrat um, or the evil Mitch McConnell. I instead voted for the libertarian because there was a candidate in Kentucky. I'm here in Louisville, Kentucky. I was proud to vote for Rand Paul against Charles Booker for his... Uh, race for his uh, uh, keeping his seat in the U.S. Senate. Um, But what I've done recently, and I think this is a fascinating topic, I know a lot of people are discussing it, is I've been, uh, I'll admit, I've been sucked in by the allure of the Kennedy family, and I'm now a fan, I guess you can say a fan, of RFK Jr. What are your thoughts on everything? And we don't have to dive just into RFK Jr. because I think that's very interesting too. But what are your thoughts on my voting strategy? Would that be consistent with the voting defensively, as you said? So for me, when I'm talking about defensively voting, um, I'm, I'm talking about supporting candidates specifically who are principled. In other words, uh, they don't believe the government should be growing in any area. In fact, they believe the government should be cut in all areas. So that's, to me, a form of defensive voting that I would say I would most strongly align with. I understand that people trying to pick the lesser of, of two evils in terms of just being like, oh, well, you know, it's this person or this person, you know, for, for federal government. And, I, you know, I, I just don't want to be as oppressed. I, I get it. I understand it. Um, I just would often um, caution on, on two elements very specifically. And this is, um, I think, really the core of it. And that's when it comes to a candidate who you might be considering supporting, if that person is themselves not principled, right? They don't actually have internalized um, the libertarian ethics and economics, right? And as someone like that, that, you know, I could easily point to would be like Thomas Massey, right? He definitely has the core principles, right? He may be a Republican, but he has, you know, he, he definitely has the core principles kind of ground. He's not a voluntarist anarchist, but he's definitely in the, you know, government needs to be cut across the board. So if, if you don't have that uh, you and you have someone else who has other areas like the government needs to grow, there's a big danger because what is most likely to happen is that given the nature of politics and bipartisanship, 
the things that are the worst of their policies are the ones that are most probable to get passed by nature of legislation and collaboration within the government. And so when it comes to someone like RFK, I would say on the topics that I'm in alignment with on him, I love that he's a public speaker on it. I think that's great. I don't have a problem with him speaking, you know, just as a public figure on those things and waking people up to the malfeasance of deep state agencies or stuff on shots. But when he becomes a politician, then I have a problem. And the reason why is that he's seeking political office and power. And we know from his long history, it's it's not, you know, hidden. He's There's no misunderstandings about what his past views are. They were very open as an activist. He's, he's very much on board with the Green New Deal. He's even advocated for people being arrested for even denying climate change. He has been a huge proponent of gun control, majorly. Um, and he has been, you know, whole cloth in support of a welfare state. So as much as he might have some access to grind with the deep state as it relates to his family, he doesn't necessarily have a meaningful critique on state on the state and state power. And so I tell people that he will not um, be your savior. He will, in all likelihood, end up doing or getting accomplished the worst of his positions. Not the best, but the worst, because those are the ones that are most likely to come into his purview and come through the pipeline. And I think that's just true. The higher up you go in politics, uh, that is more toward you know, from local to state than to federal. If you're all the way up there, then you're especially likely to have only the worst things. So that that's kind of the political side of things. And then there's the economic side of things. The, on the economic side of things, everybody has scarce resources in terms of their time and their money and what they talk about, right? If you're talking about something in time, you can't be talking about something else at the same time kind of thing generally. Um, if you're spending money on one thing, you can't use that money again for something else at the same time. If you're, you know, a supporting a certain candidate, um, that support is going to now be associated with you. It's going to also display support of something else or something better. So, you know, if someone is just doing this quick little politicking thing, being like, okay, I have some type of open primary or something where I don't have to change the registration, and they just want to vote for RFK in the Democratic primary just because, like, okay, well, at least he's better than everybody else. Okay, whatever. If that's just all it is, it's a quick primary vote to try to like move the Overton window within the Democrat Party. Um, but you know, that the idea of like, oh, I'm going to start, uh, you know, stumping for him, buying shirts, supporting their campaign, focusing on them, talking about them. I think that's a huge waste of time and all that, all those resources and all that money and all that effort could be much better used on people who are actually principled projects that are actually out there, you know, changing minds and engaging people for liberty. Um, so I think that that would be, it would be, it would be a real shame and a waste for people to do anything more for RFK. If they themselves, again, are, are already libertarians, already principled, anything more than just like, you know, a nod at whatever's good, you know, that he says, just the words, but anything more than like, oh, I'm just going to try to get him to be the nominee in the primary kind of thing. And just a quick thing, um, you know, not spending much more time than maybe a mail-in ballot thing or something like that. Um, so, you know, I, that's, that's really what it boils down to for me is that there's so many better ways to spend your time and resources for changing minds in the culture um, than to really go hard for a, a candidate who is not in any way, shape or form 
principled and libertarian. And, and I think that, uh, you know, it's a common thing. People are, are looking for saviors or looking for, Oh, this is my one shot. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's really does not turn out well for long-term and often ends up making, uh, both that politician and, and the people supporting them look like fools when reality hits and their actions, you know, belie their words, just like with Trump, you know, he's like, I'm not going to sign another omnibus spending bill. And then he does anyway. And he keeps up Fauci. And then he's promoting the shots for two years afterward. And he grew the government with Space Force, you know, and and with RFK, you don't even get the good Supreme Court picks, right? Like there's an argument about there about like practicality of, okay, who's most likely to pick a Federalist Society member who's a strict constructionist where you're likely going to have better Supreme Court outcomes. RFK, you don't even have that, right? You have the danger of having radical uh, living constitution, left wing picks so you know in that regard for me rfk is is more than just you know dangerous on on the political side but the, the supreme court picks would be absolutely horrendous um so that is something to also consider that i think not as many people give uh thought to in that process i should have uh, clarified my plan as i am now and i don't know this isn't going to make that big of an impact but i am now a registered democrat as you said i will i do plan on voting for him in the primaries hopefully he beats biden then in the the general election i would either probably not vote or maybe vote for dave smith or spike cohen if i were to vote if there's a good libertarian but i i don't like the idea of supporting someone who who you know, I'm not going to vote for a, a president in the general election who will, you know, put us in war. And I'm sure RFK would, regardless of what he says. So I, I, I do think there's much legitimacy to what you're saying. Uh, one thing, one thing that I would say for me selfishly, I'm very early in this journey. Is thanks to his interviews, I have not, and his book. I'm almost finished with his book about Fauci. I am now completely awake to the corruption of you know the nih the fda uh as of course i should have been already um i I had simply never looked into exactly how things work in the uh, childhood vaccine schedule i do think is very uh important to our country so i will say there is some value in his candidacy does that make sense so I mean, I even have his book as well, and I, I've read it among many other books that I have on the topic, and was familiar with most of what he wrote, you know, beforehand. But there was definitely some great nuggets in there too. I mean, it's it's a very thick book, um, you know, small type font, lots of details. So I would recommend his book, you know, pretty much to anybody, you know, who's just curious about um, how the government's, you know, system of of medicine, you could say, uh, has been used to to harm people. Um, it's just that's a difference between the again, opinion leader side and politics side. I don't mind him, you know, talking about these issues as an opinion leader and as as an activist in that realm. But the second you get politics involved, Mm. you know, now it's about him having power and the ability to do things that that go far beyond just his interest there, um, you know, with shots and the history with his his family and the CIA. Um, So, you know, again, what you're doing in terms of just being like, I'm just trying to push the Overton window in, in the Democratic Party. Again, I have no general qualm with that. It's, it's you know, it's there's nothing wrong with that. If it doesn't affect anything else, that would be a problem for you. I mean, yeah, it's like, okay, I'm trying to move things over there and just signal that, you know, the, the crony Dems otherwise who have no good principles whatsoever, you know, shouldn't even be considered. Yeah, I mean, whatever, you know, but it, um, ultimately going much beyond that, you know, to me is, is just concerning. I just, and I warn people against that. And I'm, I'm just glad that you also have that, that good <laughs> principled outlook afterward to be like, yeah. And, and despite that, of course, I'm supporting 
and the general, someone who's actually more principled like Spike or maybe Dave, um, if either of them run, which, you know, probably won't, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's definitely something to just remember and keep in mind, you know, what the realistic outcomes are, especially at that level. So RFK has supported the actual Green New Deal. I, didn't, I should be better well read on that. He has. So, yeah, I mean, he, he was an environmental like so he, I don't know if he's ever said, oh, I support the Green New Deal in terms of the exact words, but in terms of his history on um, green energy, climate change and everything else that all his talking points 100 percent line up with Green New Deal. Like it's so it's not even like a matter and he may have you could probably go through just tweets or other stuff and may have given a nod to it, but it's not really even necessary because he's been in that realm for so long as an activist in there. You can just look at his history of content um, and talking points about that. I mean, even just, again, what was it like? Uh, it was 2015 or 2016. He was saying to arrest uh, people yeah. for denying climate change, like not that long ago. And again, this is an old guy, you know, this is not someone who's 35, 45, 55. I mean, he's what is he? Uh, 69. Yes, almost 70, right? So this is someone who's pretty firm in his views. You know, he's he's pretty structured in the system um, and, and his, you know, long history of these things. And, you know, we're not really expecting to have an aha moment. And even the things he's talking about, they're not new. Like the, his his disdain for the CIA and the deep state's not new. His disdain for the pharmaceutical companies is not new. This is old, you know, RFK stuff. This, this is stuff he's been talking about for decades. So- just that it's getting more popular at this point in time because now there's a huge interest in it thanks to what the government did. That's just really it. But he he has not fundamentally changed, in my opinion, in my view. Uh, and even looking at some of his recent talks, um, I think it was like Moms for Liberty talk and uh, a few other interactions he had where he you know slips through his his tyrannical views on gun control and, and whatever else that I, I don't see how he has meaningfully changed. He's not principled. He didn't, he didn't suddenly be like, Oh my gosh, I read like anatomy of the state or I read, you know, Larkin Rose, or I read, you know, something that fundamentally shook him. Um, so I just think that he's, he's getting amplified on, on a lot of the things that he was already doing and already um, heavily engaged in, in his work. So he's obviously a very intelligent guy because I've heard him I mean, I don't have real big, strong opinions on the border wall. For some reason, that's not, doesn't seem like the biggest topic, at least for me. It doesn't mean it's not a big topic, but I'm not the most, you know, familiar with it or passionate about that. And I heard him acknowledge the existence of Trump derangement syndrome. So this guy's like charming. He was like, you know, I may have fallen into it. I thought it was a bad idea because Trump was saying it. So he acknowledged Trump derangement syndrome exists. And it, now he's kind of going back and saying that he actually does support the idea of a wall. So I don't know. He just is coming across as being very honest and very charming. And I know historically that doesn't always lead to good things. No, he, he's absolutely, he's an intelligent person. Of course, intelligence does not mean correct. You could have a very high IQ. And if your foundations are wrong, you're just getting to the wrong answer faster. Um, so I, I absolutely agree that he is an intelligent guy and he's a great politician. And I, I think that people often forget this, that when it comes to politics, um, the number one incentive of politics is to get elected. And his angle, his new angle, that is for trying to get the votes is this bringing people together angle, right? He's like, I'm tired of the hate and the discord and, you know, the us people versus them. He's trying to do the unity angle, which is not new. I mean, tons of people have done the unity angle, even Obama did the unity angle. Um, so he he's playing that card 
um, to try to get what he can um, in, in terms of votes because he's not obviously favored by the rest of the Democrats, right? The DNC has heavy ties with the pharmaceutical industries. They don't like what he says about them, even though they're in agreement probably on 90% at least of everything else. They, you know, it's it's a big club and within that club, uh, just like any other social situation, you cannot like someone for certain things, right? And that's and that's the thing that people don't really understand is that, you know, people like him or, or like Trump, right? He's in the club, but people just have personality differences with him. And, and before he ran, he was literally on every show and everything you can imagine. And people were fine with him and promoted him and whatever. So, you know, he he's doing what he does best um, as a politician, which is trying to appeal, trying to heal the divide and and trying to get people to um, really want to support him outside the machine. And, you know, in many ways, it's kind of like being a left side, uh, you know, Trump in a sense, you know what I mean? Just being someone who's like, yeah, I'm the outsider. I'm going to take on the corruption. And we all know how that ultimately turns out when someone doesn't actually have the ethical principles and economics grounded. We, you know, it's very, easy to understand what really gets done. You know, despite Trump doing a couple of good things, um, obviously the, the government grew enormously during his presidency and he rubber stamped all of it. He passed those bills. Um, so, you know, I, I expect the, ex the same exact thing with RFK. I would expect he would do a couple good things like, oh, that was good. And then literally wreak havoc everywhere else with the, with the growth of government and other tyranny. So... It almost reminds me of Obama during his initial presidential campaign. He was had very well put together anti-war rhetoric, didn't he? Yep. Yeah, and Bush, and Bush before him ran humble foreign policy. It's the same thing, you know. When you get around long enough, and you and you you look at the history, and, and it's easier than ever now because obviously we have video and mass media, so we can actually go back and watch the clip. You know, no longer is it just secondhand information from some rally, and you're like, oh, what they say. Now it's like, oh, here we're watching them lie in real time. So it, it's not really that confusing anymore. You hear the lip service. There are very few people who could meaningfully change things or do things up at that level. And, you know, as we know from history, those who do try to do those things often uh, get assassinated or have people disappear or, you know, get charges. It's, you know, even Trump, even Trump trying to do some good, um, you know, despite the rest of his bad, which is overwhelmingly bad, he he faced the, you know, pressures of, of the New York justice system trying to go after him with all those crony people there didn't like him. So, it's just very difficult to meaningfully enact change at that level of the presidency um, without having the world of cronyism come after you. <laughs> Jack, earlier you said, and I'm going to um, try to repeat what I heard you say. You said, if you want to support some of the things RFK Jr. is saying and you enjoy that he has a platform to say some good messages, then great. But don't go out and buy a T-shirt for him. Don't go out and campaign for him. My question, well, first off, is that a fair analysis of what you said, Chanda? That is dead on. That's okay. exactly that. Okay. Who should we go out and campaign for? Who should we go out and buy T-shirts of? 
So that I'm not sure who is is best um, for that on an individual basis because obviously everybody has their own unique situations. They not everybody has the same, of course, living situation. People are in different states, different localities. So I, I couldn't say who is best for any particular person because that will depend on who is in your area and who is running and who is actually principled. Um, so each person's going to have to look at their own local situation, see, you know, who is doing what, whether someone's running for mayor or maybe someone's running for governor or legislature, they're, you know, they're going to have to take a look at the set of, of people and candidates and see who's actually principled and not just a grifter, which the LP unfortunately has a lot of people um, who are washed up Democrats and Republicans uh, coming on by because they're like, well, I can still keep raising money and do what I know how to do best which would be a politician and they, you know, they, they try to trick libertarians. And then there's some who come in earnestly. They, you know, they, they're like really frustrated with Democrats and Republicans, but they haven't become principled yet. And, um, you know, they're, they're eager to run, but they're clueless on the constitution or anything that's related to their office. And they need actually to, to do something. That's like, you know, your, your Joe Schmo average person who's like, I want to, you know, run for office and change. I'm going to run for Senate. And then, you know, they don't really have any idea about, politics and often, you know, the principles either. So, um, it, you know, if there isn't anybody who is, is worthy of that kind of thing, um, or they're, you know, it's off political season, it's nothing spicy. There's just so many different people and organizations who are doing great work, who need support and need help getting out materials. I mean, whether it could just be as simple as the Mises Institute and helping support them or getting, you know, economic primers into the hands of students, right? You know, like a per byline book or something like that. Um, it could be helping support um, someone who is just a really great on the street person who's like doing actives in that way or someone who's, you know, producing great content like Stossel and his videos, which still are killing it. I mean, he still gets 300,000, 400, 500,000 views on his videos. And it, it's really incredible how great of, um, you know, a, a, a distillation he he does of how bad the government is and, and how great uh, alternatives are, you know. So I, I think there's just so many ways to affect change that are not necessarily directly political, but that have a deep and great meaning um, for the culture and for changing minds. So again, you know, if politics is your thing, you know, more power to you. There's some people who just, they just get excited about it and that's just what drives them. And it's like, okay, well, um, there, you know, there's opportunities for that when they come up. Um, as they come up for your individual area, whether it might be local or, or state level or something like that. But um, if things aren't as, uh, you know, exciting or, or things are off season, you know, think about what you can do to help change minds. Otherwise, I mean, it doesn't have to be crazy. It could be um, getting the Tuttle twins for a cousin for their birthday. It could be holding up a sign in the street just because you're bored on a Friday and saying taxation is theft, vote to abolish, you know, the, the federal reserve, right? It could be, um, you know, putting economic primers like anatomy of the state or economics in one lesson in little free libraries, right? There's lots of ways to do small bits of activism that can lead to big butterfly effect changes. And so, um, you know, there really is an, an unlimited way of, of, of helping us push toward a freer future. So politics is not the only way, but, you know, if you're going to do that, be judicious, discerning, and support those who are truly principled. Jack, I want to be respectful of your time. Before we wrap up the episode, how can anyone listening follow and support you? Sure. So I got a new uh, website up, finally, just for me personally, jackvlloyd.com. That's J-A-C-K, V is in voluntarist, Lloyd, L-L, it's two L's, L-L-O-Y-D.com. 
I finally got around to just putting a personal website up there so you can connect with all my stuff. Um, and that's, uh, you know, going to lead you to my books, my fiction stuff, music, music videos, and other projects. And then I also have my traditional vol comic V as in voluntarist again, V O L C O M I C.com. That's my comic book series site. And then I am otherwise all over the internet. I mean, you can pretty much look up my stuff on everywhere from Facebook to Twitter, to YouTube, to minds, to East and C to Instagram. I mean, it, you know, it, it's, it's all over and <laughs> somewhere everywhere. And in, and in weird places you might not even expect, but at least the websites can give you a place to start to check out um, a lot of my core creative productions. Jack Lloyd, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate it.